Imagine, Alan Bennett is sitting at home listening to the radio. It's 2001. Nicholas Heitner is one of our most successful directors, be it in opera or the theatre, and more recently in cinema. A decade earlier, Heitner had worked with Alan Bennett at the National Theatre on Bennett's play The Madness of George III, which they had turned into an award-winning film. That mention of, of um, King George takes us quite nicely to our first composer. Handel. When Alan Bennett first gave me the play... Bennett keeps listening. He was on Private Passions, the, the very good programme on Radio 3 with Michael Barclay. As he later explained at a National Theatre Platform event, an idea formed for a character that would feature in his next play. He was expecting to hear Heitner describing his time at Manchester Grammar School when he had a good voice and had sung with the Halle Orchestra under Barbirolli. He didn't. And I listened to this thinking he would talk about his early experience with Barbirolli, but he didn't talk about this. He did play um, Ella Fitzgerald uh, singing uh, Bewitched, Bothered and Bewildered. <laughs> with the original Moss Hart lyrics. Each spring to him. to him, I, and and I worship the trousers that cling to him. <laughs> uh, and I thought uh, this would be very good from a, a boy with a crush on another boy singing. A, a boy with an unbroken voice. My voice broke very, very late. I was 16 or so before my voice broke. And so I started to write a play in which there was a boy with an unbroken voice, feeling quite out of it at school, very much as I did. The History Boys, which Heidner went on to direct at the National. But I'm like a sweet 17 a lot, bewitched, bothered and bewildered am I. Posner, the lovelorn sick former who sings Ella Fitzgerald in The History Boys, is one of Bennett's most autobiographical characters. He can laugh, but I love it, because the laugh's on me. I'll sing to him, each spring to him, and worship the trousers that cling to him. Bewitched, bothered and bewildered am I. Posner, played by Samuel Barnett on stage and again in the later film version. Over the next three hours, I'll be bringing to life behind-the-scenes stories, like the one you just heard from 50 years of the National Theatre. I'm Daniel Rosenthal. I've been writing what you might call the National's biography. So, with clips from BBC programmes, National Theatre Archive and my own interview recordings, I'll be conjuring moments from some of the National's hundreds of productions. Stand by, Lex Q3, please, Brad. Slide operator, stand by. Follow spot, stand by, please. Stand by on the sound, please, Gabby. Band, stand by. Go. We need good theatres that do new plays and works from the English and 
continental repertoire well. What are we waiting for? It's the hot ticket, standing room only. Yeah! I still go into that building with great sort of hope and optimism, even though the last two or three shows I might have seen there haven't been any good. Littleton Theatre, Littleton Theatre, School for Wives Company. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is your half an hour. Forget your troubles, come on, get happy. It's a great asset, I think, such a theatre. There's a great deal that's wrong with it. One can now barely imagine the English stage without the National Theatre, but we all remember how the project was long despaired of. And when the National Theatre opened, I think it's fair to say that nobody wanted it. The commercial theatre didn't want it to happen because the commercial theatre was going through a bad time and thought it would threaten them. The subsidised theatre was scared that it would take resources away from, from them. Institutions were unpopular. Spending money on institutions were unpopular. The good thing about the whole situation is from the day this building opened, the public wanted it. The unthinkable yesterday becomes the way of things. It's got shabbier, which is a good thing for a theatre. The foyers now begin to smell of gin and tonic. Cheers. It's very difficult to know what the audience is. Yes, please. Uh, two for the Tom Stoppard. Tom Stoppard said to me once when I was standing in a foyer with a show of mine, he said, my God, you pull a lot of denim. Olivier Theatre, Olivier Theatre, the King Leo Company, good evening. People say, oh, everyone should go to the theatre. Why should they? We don't want an audience brought in by force. Don't come, please, because you've been told to. That won't do at all. Some shows, characters, and opinions from over five decades. Thank you very much. The house is now open. Thank you. When the National Theatre Company was finally brought into being in October 1963, with Laurence Olivier as its director, it was initially based at the Old Vic Theatre. Listeners may have heard about it on The Public Ear. After a hundred years of fruitless dreams and painful indecision, the British National Theatre opens on Tuesday. But will this be the kind of theatre that you will want to go to? Or will it be just another exclusive club for the benefit of a few actors and those oh-so-darling theatrical people who think that they should have a playhouse that we should pay for? Already they've got a million pounds out of the Treasury and they expect to lose at least £2,000 of it every single week. And what will you get for all this money? We are providing a public service and we're hoping everybody will take advantage of it. The idea behind it is to put as many of the great plays of the past and contemporary plays into a permanent, a sort of theatrical equivalent of the, you know, the British Museum where you can go and in the course of eight performances see eight completely different plays, maybe a Greek play one night, then a Shakespeare, then a contemporary play, a comedy, a farce, performed by the top actors of their time. In the company now we have Olivier, Sir Michael Redgrave, Peter O'Toole, Tom Courtney, uh, Diana Wynyard, Maggie Smith, and um, I can't see myself why this didn't happen hundreds of years ago. This is Kenneth Tynan. It's the first of what I hope will be a whole grid of civically supported, government-supported theatres all over England in the, uh, the big cities and towns. 
there is also a possibility which I should like to see explored of the National Theatre occasionally appearing on uh, TV, which would allow us to really reach the, the, you know, the maximum audience. Kenneth Tynan obviously has ambitious plans for the future, but on Tuesday, less than a thousand people will be there to see Peter O'Toole play Hamlet, which makes it a pretty small theatre compared to tonight's television play, which will be seen by over seven million people. But the National Theatre will make acting once and for all a respectable profession. And now that they've become civil servants, actors might even be able to get bank loans, mortgages and insurance on the same terms as other people. So, a National Theatre would engender respectability, for actors at least. Today's directors would shudder at Kenneth Tynan's suggestion that the National should be a museum. But he was right to predict that its productions would be seen on television, and he would surely have applauded today's NT Live initiative, with plays beamed to audiences watching in cinemas across the country and around the world. In 1963, the company's very presence at the Old Vic encouraged scepticism. To some, it was off-puttingly remote. It's no coincidence that the National Theatre in Waterloo Road is cut off by the Thames and a maze of one-way streets from the very place where people generally go to find entertainment, the West End. People seem to be convinced that culture is dull and that a good play will inevitably be slightly boring, but many people, like Wolf Mankiewicz, are not convinced that this theatre will be, first and foremost, a place of entertainment. I think it'll amplify the feeling that theatre is culture with a capital C because the National Theatre is going to recruit, has already recruited, great names of the theatre um, whose association is for the public ineradicably with culture. It doesn't matter uh, how cultural and uh, important it is, the people will not come unless they're dragooned in. Audiences, undragooned, did come in, and not just for the plays. Well, first of all, let me welcome you to the National Theatre. My name's David Taylor, and if during the course of the tour you have any questions you want to ask me or any points you want to raise on anything you see, by all means stop me and ask me, and I'll do my best to answer them. Once National Theatre actors and staff had settled into their purpose-built home on the South Bank in 1976, people came, as they still do, for a look round. Uh, there's no photography. I see some of you have got cameras. And uh, also, I'll ask you please to stick well together very briefly about the National Theatre itself. The company was formed in 1963, and our first artistic director was Sir Laurence Olivier. And the first performances were given at the Old Vic Theatre, just a little further down Waterloo Road. Now, also in 1963, uh, the architect was appointed for the building of the building of the National Theatre. His name was Dennis Lasden. He's since knighted. He's now Sir Dennis Lasden. He was chosen partly because he had never actually designed a theatre in his life. They thought the theatre's architect was announced on the morning of the 22nd of November, 1963. That afternoon, his colleagues gathered round a radio at their London office, champagne at the ready, and tuned in to hear news of his appointment. News has just come in that President Kennedy has been shot. It happened as the President was riding with his wife in an open car through the streets of Dallas, Texas. The President was rushed to hospital where there's still no word of his condition. We'll bring you any further news as soon as it's received. The most important day of Dennis Lasden's career was punctuated by some of the most sensational news of the decade. And now this is Jimmy Kingsbury with the rest of the news. The architect for the National Theatre and Opera House to be built on the South Bank in London will be Mr Dennis Lasden. 
He says it may be five years before the buildings are completed. Now we're breaking into our radio newsreel for a moment. President Kennedy, here's a report we've just received from Leonard Parkin in Washington. This is Leonard Parkin reporting from Washington. Events in Dallas, understandably, kept breaking into more domestic concerns. Now back to Mr. Lasden, the architect of the new University of East Anglia, and now appointed architect of the National Theatre and New Opera House. Hugh Moran spoke to him shortly after his appointment. Now, you've had no theatrical experience at all. None at all. How do you propose to cope with this rather specialised requirement? Well, I think you've got to try and understand that uh, I shall not be left alone. One wonders if Lasden's words even registered with listeners. Mr. Lasden, thank you very much. Now, further newsflash from America, the President's condition is said to be critical. Now, after that interview, Hugh Moran spoke to the National Theatre's director, Sir Lawrence Olivier, and asked him what he thought constituted the perfect theatre. What people might describe as a per perfect theatre nowadays is a little bit difficult to determine, as the theatre is in such a rapidly moving process of development. Could anyone really take in what Laurence Olivier was saying? Where it is going, we can't be quite sure. The news ended with shocking confirmation. The Voice of America transmitters are reporting the fact that the president has in fact died. As soon as we have further news for you, we'll bring it. And that ends Radio Newsreel for this evening. Likely missed by many, and hardly controversial at the time, was the statement that the new National Theatre would be built within five years. It took 13. When the Queen finally opened Lasden's building in 1976, everyone, including Lord Cottesloe, the chairman of the South Bank Theatre Board, seemed surprised, finally, to have got there. Your Majesty, when some five years ago I had the opportunity of saying that I hoped that you would in due course come here to open the National Theatre, you replied that you doubted whether by that time you would still be here. And as this project was begun in the year 1848, that seemed to me to be fair comment. But here at long last we are, ma'am, and we appreciate most warmly and gratefully the honour you have done us in coming here this evening. Lord Cottesloe, thank you for your welcome. I am as happy and relieved as you are that my gloomy predictions have proved unfounded. My family has taken part in many ceremonies connected with the National Theatre and not all of them have been at the site on which we now stand. <laughs> but today I am indeed glad to join in what must surely be universal rejoicing that the much-needed and long-awaited National Theatre is now a reality. It stands as a tribute to all those who dreamed of it, to those who argued and fought for it, to those who designed and built it, and to those who founded and developed its famous company. I know it is the determination of the National Theatre Company to fill this building with that special brand of magic that only the theatre can provide, and for this to be enjoyed by people of all walks of life and of every age. I wish it all possible success. I have much pleasure in declaring the National Theatre open.
There's plenty more from the South Bank later in the programme, and plenty more about a less formal side of the theatre. Before that, I invite you to take a seat around a table in a studio in 2009. Michael Gambon, Maggie Smith, Derek Jacobi and Joan Plowright are amongst Sue McGregor's guests, recalling the triumphant early years of the National Theatre Company for an especially evocative episode of The Reunion. It was a long time coming. Plans for a national theatre for Britain began when Queen Victoria was young, but disagreements over where it should be and what it should be like, not to mention two world wars and a chronic lack of funds, delayed the laying of its foundation stone until Festival of Britain year, 1951. Eleven years on, and with still no new building to move into, the National's first director, Sir Laurence Olivier, was appointed. The governors of the Old Vic offered their theatre as a temporary home. And it was there that on the 22nd of October 1963, the National Theatre put on their first production, Shakespeare's Hamlet. A ticket in the stalls for the first season cost 27 and 6, and in the gallery, three shillings, the equivalent of 15 pence today. There were house-full signs every night. The critics were enthusiastic, but even so, the first season ended with a deficit of over £22,000. Today, we reunite some of the original National Theatre Company, all of them part of that remarkable beginning, to find out how it happened and what it meant to British theatre. Lawrence Olivier had inspired wartime Britain with his film of Henry V, and he'd already been given the chance to run his own theatrical company at the new Chichester Festival Theatre in Sussex. Dramatic news from the Cathedral City of Chichester. The Chichester Festival Theatre, as it's called, is to have Sir Lawrence Olivier as its director. This is the fruition of an idea. This is the reality of romance. But Olivier had longed for years to run a national theatre in London, director Peter Hall. I very much doubt whether it would ever have happened if Larry's power, prestige, glamour at that particular point hadn't got behind it and had another go. With their own purpose-built theatre still a distant dream, the company found its temporary home at the well-established Old Vic. Livia brought in the critic, Kenneth Tynan, as literary manager, which was an unprecedented combination. The Old Vic, as founded by Lillian Bayliss, was always a theatre which was not selling a product, but providing a service. Observing it all, Olivia's old comrade-in-arms, John Gilgood. I think he trusted Tynan because he thought Tynan was much better read and much more in touch with the avant-garde. Another important influence over the new company was the actress Joan Plowright, whom Olivia had married in 1961. Suppose she loved you. How would you take that? I think he knew that that was where the future lay. Olivia brought in bright young things from the Royal Court Theatre, including John Dexter and Bill Gaskell, director Michael Blakemore. I mean, something like uh, Bill Gaskell going to the opening performance of Hamlet, still wearing his black leather jacket in which he usually rehearsed wasn't really Larry's style at all. Olivia wanted a big star for the opening night of the first production, and he got one. And bring the Arab army here to Aqaba, quickly. Peter O'Toole, fresh from the deserts of North Africa. For the National Theatre to succeed, it needed continuing government support. 
But on opening night, the Conservative government was still mired in the Profumo scandal with the Denning report just out. Rupert Rhymes was the Old Vic's theatre manager. The one politician that I noticed, because he was the one who'd have agreed to money from the Treasury, was Selwyn Lloyd. And, um, you know, it was the beginning of coming across politicians, film stars, and, <laughs> dare I say, a fairly regular basis. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt for and resolve itself into a dew. With me sitting round the table to talk about the National Theatre at the Old Vic are five people who remember it only too well. Dame Maggie Smith and Dame Joan Plowright, Sir Derek Jacobi and Sir Michael Gambon, and one of the first associate directors of the company, William Gaskell, Bill Gaskell. Joan, let me start with you. Um, the first season for the National Theatre at the Old Vic had to be created pretty much from scratch, and you were married to the man who was at least half of that creative team... What do you remember of the scramble to get it all together? Well, you know, we were living in New York. We were both playing in plays on Broadway with no idea what we were going to do next when a letter came from an optician in Chichester saying they were going to build a theatre and would he consider being the first director? And at that time, the National Theatre was not really on the horizon. So it was not planned. It was just a sort of happy accident. He was very apprehensive about taking it on by himself. It... It just seemed so, um, a sort of outrageous request, really. Bill Gaskell, you were part of, um, I suppose, the intellectual new writing brigade in the theatre at the time. You were at the Royal Court. Who approached you to be part of the new National Theatre? I think it started partly from the relationship that Joan had with uh, John Dexter, who was the other associate. We were both at the Royal Court under George Devine. Neither of us had any background in classical theatre. And you rather insisted on Maggie Smith being in there. It was uh, agreed that I should do the restoration comedy. And I said, well, I won't do restoration comedy unless I can have Maggie Smith because uh, I'd seen her in a play by Congreve, which I thought she was absolutely extraordinary. Maggie, did you not know he'd insisted on you? No, I didn't know. I'm I'm delighted to hear it, but I certainly didn't know that. (laughs) I didn't know that at all. Thank you very much. Because <laughs> I wouldn't be sitting here if you hadn't. What, were, what was your reaction then when you were asked to join this When new I was company? first asked, um, I said no, because I was just too frightened. Frightened of Olivier? I was frightened of the whole idea, because I sort of was firmly, as Bill says, I was sort of West End. So uh, I just couldn't, couldn't imagine doing such, such a, a wonderful thing. What made you change your mind, then? Bev made me change my mind, who was eventually my husband. Beverly Cross. Mm. And uh, he said, don't be ridiculous, of course you've got to do it. So I did. Are you somebody who needs a push? Yes, I do. I need a, I need a forklift truck, practically, to get me to do things. <laughs> <laughs> and Derek Jacobi, you, were, you came from Rep, I think, didn't yes, you? Yes, I was, I was incredibly lucky. Um, one... Wednesday matinee at Birmingham Rep. I was playing Shakespeare's Henry VIII, and Sir Lawrence was out front. We weren't told he was out front, um, and he came round afterwards. And I used to get up very quickly um, to go to the Cardoma for me tea, and I was sharing a dressing room with Cardinal Wolsey at the time. And uh, 
There was a knock on the door. And Solanus came in and just shook my hand and said, well done, um, and then went over to um, Cardinal Wolsey and raved about his performance. <laughs> um, and he left. And I thought, oh, dear, he, he couldn't have... And then, within minutes, he came back in and said, terribly sorry, I didn't recognise you, and then started to uh, praise me and then offered me a job. And, Michael Gambon, you came in not from theatre as we know it. I mean, it was much more political theatre and uh, you'd, you'd worked in Ireland as well. You, yeah, I wanted you... to be an actor and I'd done some plays at Unity Theatre, which is a communist theatre in Camden Town, and I'd done a West End understudy part and I'd auditioned for, uh, for the National Theatre and they took me as a walk-on. I, I couldn't believe it. It was wonderful. Because your, your first uh, choice of career was, was an aircraft mechanic, isn't it? Yeah, right? yeah. So now I gave all that up. And I auditioned for, for Sir Lawrence. I, I, was, I tell you, I was so thick, I didn't know he played Richard III, and I did Richard III for him. But you did the opening soliloquy. He said, what are you going to do? I said, Richard III. And he said, which part are you going to play? I said, I said uh, Richard III. He said, yes, I know, but are you going to play Buckingham, Catesby, one of those parts? I said, no. I'm, he said, well, you're going to play the main role. I said, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't realise he was just laughing. And, uh, and I started, was every woman in this humour? He said, no, no, no. He said, you can't do that that close to me. You have to walk away from me so that I can see you in full length. And the uh, next day they rang up and said, uh, you can start on Monday. <laughs> Derek, uh, you played Laertes in Hamlet through, yeah. as you say, a bit of luck. But you had to deal with Peter O'Toole who never really yeah. gave the same performance two nights running. So well, how did you cope with that? <clears throat> with difficulty. I remember in the rehearsal, he didn't like the uh, fight we were doing. Um, and he said, let's go upstairs and uh, re-rehearse the fight. Um, and, he, of course, he wanted much more swash and buckle. And so it was, you know, I'll, I'll jump and you'll hit up my feet and then I'll duck and you'll hit up my head. And we did all that. <laughs> but because it didn't get very good reviews... Peter, who'd been very good and had been on the wagon, he started um, his old habits again. Um, and so when we got to the dual scene in performance after the first, say, week, he would wink at me across the stage. Um, he'd had a couple by then. And he would just... I'd have to fight for my life. I mean, and he literally did swing, swing the sword into the front row. We had letters of complaint. And, and Were you conscious of this extraordinary feeling of excitement in the first season? Yes, I mean, I, I was always happy that I didn't have a part to play, being a bit lazy. So I used to just like the kudos of walking out the stage door and we used to plan our trips to the stage so that we could walk past Sir Lawrence as he walked along the corridor. That's how in awe of him we were. But, I mean, what he wanted to do was create a company that would be on a par with the Comédie Française and the Moscow Arts Theatre or the Berliner Ensemble. And and it was a, a mecca for actors, wasn't it? Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm not just prejudiced. No, no. And he, he was so generous to us yeah. young actors. Um, he was so kind. He was so supportive to the youngsters in the company. He was, you know, he was our employer, he was our boss, but he was our, and our director and our fellow actor, mentor, father figure, friend. He was all those things. As Beatlemania and Carnaby Street defined swinging London, across the Thames, the old Vic was creating its own buzz. 
Tickets were very hard to come by. Yes, I like Shakespeare as the serious theatre. You see a different world, don't you, in the theatre, a world of make-believe. Tom Stoppard was then a part-time playwright and a regular theatre-goer. There was a sense of the British theatre becoming less insular, more open to what was happening on the continent, and they were, they were heady days. Jonathan Miller, who was later to become one of the national star directors, watched Olivier at work. I mean, there really was that little touch of Harry in the night. He would appear with his uh, cup of tea, and he was an actor like them. And that, I think, was a terribly important thing. Everyone who was performing felt that whatever he had to say came from the experience that they all shared. Attention to detail even stretched to the audience's programmes. The other thing that Olivia emphasised was that programmes were going to be different, that it wouldn't just be something surrounded by gin adverts. It would actually be a document that you should be able to read and get some more background out of the experience that you were having at the theatre. But the Old Vic Theatre, built in 1818, had its limitations. If any of my friends were coming to the theatre... Billy Whitelaw was an early company member. Row, seat, whatever, because you will sit with your legs straddled either side of an enormous pillar. Even Olivia had his reservations about the theatre. I don't think I ever liked the old Vic very much. It's an awful thing to say. As soon as I arrived in the place later on, I thought, I wonder if I could be able to bear the smell of stale tea and dead cats and the sort of dusty chumminess of the tea and hard boiled eggs. The tea and eggs were laid on in the canteen run by the charismatic Rose, another fan of Larry's. I wouldn't like to praise him, but he was my wonderful man. Can I say that? He would come up and say, Rose, give us a cup of coffee, Rose, as I smash your nose in. And to me, that was marvellous. <laughs> what was the atmosphere like off stage at the Old Vic in those first years? There were a lot of huts about, weren't there? The, oh, there was Aquinas Street. Yeah. Can somebody explain Aquinas Street? Because that's where Larry had his office, was that right? Well, yeah, with the administrative offices, wasn't yeah. it? There was also a large room at the end which was used as a rehearsal room. It was, it was um, a, a Nissen hut, it was yeah. Um, yeah. prefabricated. Um, and and that's where the, Sir Saturn ruled yeah, from. So, yes. uh, we were all on one, this one corridor, and the, the walls were paper thin, so everything could be heard. Every single <laughs> piece of casting, everything you thought about it. You know, you'd hear down, not in my theatre, you'd hear down the corridor. <laughs> <laughs> that you, you had to get on and you had to create together. I mean, when you build these huge places like the National Theatre, there is not a chance in hell of creating that atmosphere. Michael Gambon? I don't like modern buildings. I don't like the Barbican or the National Theatre. No, no character. I love Victorian theatres and stuffy dressing rooms and horrible corridors and crampness and, and having mates yes, and yes. Uh, having a fag in the corridor and all that. But that's all <laughs> gone. We all shared dressing rooms. Maggie and yes, I right. shared a dressing room. We'd had to. We were usually there in rotation, weren't we? Yeah. How did you feel uh, sharing? A dressing room with Sir's wife, Maggie. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we didn't. We, we were never in the same same production. And talking of Sir's wife, it <laughs> it was sometimes quite a difficult position to be in. Well, I wondered about Stranded that. between the two of them. Do you think it affected um, the parts you were given? Well, I did have to be very careful, obviously, and so did Larry. And I, I actually engaged John Dexter as a spy. 
I asked him to be when there were all at those meetings about casting, and if Larry sort of put me forward for a part, I would ask John to tell me what other people have said. <laughs> That she's too old or she's not right. Or, <laughs> so that I wouldn't be in any trouble with my fellow actors. And sometimes, you know, I'd go into the canteen, I'd go to join people at a table, and they'd all stop talking the minute I arrived. Because were, you were Lady Olivia? Well, no, because, yes, but because well, they were obviously complaining. To, to himself, that's why. <clears throat> they had a lot of complaints, and, and they thought I ought not to hear them. Mm. Well, I would have complained myself along with them. Where, where he, he was so inspirational, I think, it was that, you know, where he gave those early three-year contracts to mm. a group of people, people like Maggie, mm. people like Albert, who had glittering careers outside and were willing to say, to give up those careers, films yeah. and, and uh, West End, to spend three years at the Old Vic. And he made you feel that if, if you weren't getting it at the moment, you would end up getting it, because that's uh, he had great trust in you, and that's why he'd cast you, because he knew that eventually you would come good. All the time that The National was growing in the public's affection, the Royal Shakespeare Company must have been looming on a horizon somewhere nearby because it wasn't that much older than The National Company. Were you aware of um, rivalry between the two as a bit of an outsider? Yes, but I don't think we ever felt very intimidated because we knew we were an actor's theatre, really. I mean... Uh, that, that it was that what Larry was concerned with was the quality of acting in in an ensemble, and I have to say that I don't think that was really the prime preoccupation of the Royal Shakespeare Company. <laughs> because Ken Tynant famously referred to the the Roundheads at the Royal Shakespeare Company and the Cavaliers at the National. <laughs> did, did he did he have it right there? Do you think? Um, Yes, well, I mean, they, they were run by Peter Hall and those Cambridge academics, weren't they, you know, with, the, with their um, laws of verse speaking and all that. And I don't think any of that ever got near the, um, the national, you know. And I, I think the fact that we weren't committed to doing Shakespeare all the time was an enormous advantage. I mean, what's so wonderful about the national is that, uh, as it is now, Half the work is new work, you know, and and that sense of it being exploratory and and, and could do any play in any, any from any country in the world was very was very very important, I think. Dexter and and Bill were, and Larry were very much about developing actors, weren't you? As you say, instead of importing stars, that that um, I remember Dexter. Well, you remember. Derek, we had to go and watch the understudies. Dexter, understudying was taken very seriously. Very seriously. I mean, uh, you were doing it, weren't yes. you? Yes. I understudied in, in hay fever, didn't I, when you were yes. in hay fever? And one day I had to go on uh, for Bob Stevens because he'd gone to the dentist. And, <laughs> and, um, and Daryl Card said, who's, who's Bob's under, understudy cover? And Diana Boddington said, that man up there, and I was sitting at the back looking terrible and he, I heard him say oh god <laughs> so he, he said you better ask him to do it he was quite different then yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, uh, when you say he was different Bill Gaskell he looked very gawky very yeah. kind of he looked like a real peasant you know yes but you were you, you, you seemed much taller then and, and, oh. and you loped around the stage we had great hopes of him I was one of the boys, six, six of us, in the top dressing room, or us walk on to small parts. 
Who were the other ones? Oh, 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 Tom Kempinski and I think Tony Hopkins. You know, he <laughs> Anthony was one, Hopkins, one time, really? Yes. And one time, Peter O'Toole, there was a message on the tannoy with Michael Gammon going to O'Toole, Mr O'Toole, and I'd never met Peter. I mean, you know, I just looked at him in awe. And, he, and I went in and he said, what do you want? And I said, I've just uh, been sent down. He said, oh, he said, are you that bastard who's pulling me out of the grave when I get a feeling? <laughs> I said, yes, sir. He said, well, you are an animal. And you're hurting my arms. <laughs> and uh, he lay down on the floor and we rehearsed another hole. <coughs> so I, t- I went upstairs to the dressing room and Tony said, why do he want to speak to you? Why do he want to speak to you? I said, he's just offered me a part in his next film. <laughs> <laughs> you never tell the truth. <laughs> There was real glamour about the new company, which Olivier did his best to encourage. And Peter Schaffer's virtuoso royal hunt of the sun dazzled the Vic audiences. The cast included a young Derek Jacobi. Because the first time I set eyes on Derek Jacobi, he was virtually naked. Peter Schaffer, who wrote it. Covered in gold medallions, uh, playing Filippolo, the treacherous interpreter, and he was absolutely brilliant. Those early days... Director Michael Blakemore. ...possibly the best years the Nationals ever had. Productions like The Recruiting Officer and Hobson's Choice and The Royal Hunt of the Sun. And I mean, some remarkable work was done. And the company's touring schedule was impressive. One night Edinburgh, one night the Vic, one night Glasgow, one night the Vic. And one night, I actually did one night Chichester on the Saturday. We closed with Trelawney of the Wells. Monday I opened in Moscow with Othello. I think that was going it some, even for the National. <laughs> Sir Lawrence did take the view that wherever we went... Joe Avelyn was the Vic's production manager. It should be as near as possible, as good as it looked in London. Everyone in the country pays their taxes, and therefore everyone's got a right to see the work of the theatre which they're paying for. The climax of the first season was Shakespeare's Othello, with Olivia as the Moor and Maggie Smith as Desdemona. Yet by your gracious patience I will a round and varnished tale deliver of my whole course of love. In Othello, he conceived this extraordinary West Indian quality with a strange walk and the wonderful makeup that was so remarkably original that you couldn't help being taken by it immediately. Happily, for I am black and have not those soft parts of conversation that chamberers have. In an era when race relations were beginning to be a major issue in Britain, some people found Olivia's portrayal of the Moor a bit uncomfortable. Journalist Bernard Levin. A lot of people didn't like it at all. I was one of those who liked it very much indeed. And it was, again, a quite extraordinarily physical performance, this sort of sensuous movement. She had a song of Willow, and she died singing it. Maggie Smith's Desdemona, when it was filmed, earned her an Oscar nomination. Sing all a green willow, her salt tears fell from her, which softened the Beautiful. Maggie Smith, you had a remarkable effect on the critics playing that and and in the film. Listening now to your younger self singing the song and being Desdemona, what are what are your thoughts? Uh, they're, they're weird. I, I I feel as though one's lost an awful lot. I mean, not 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 just me, but the having lost the, all of that atmosphere that there was there. And just listening to everybody, it's, it's made me feel very sad. I don't know if there is a theatre like that anymore, where people really want to 
to strive and really want to do their best and to improve all the time. I, I don't know if that still exists. I mean, just listening to that and thinking how extraordinary it was doing that at night, and then another night you'd be doing hay fever. It was just extraordinary. I think it. we felt Joan. privileged to be there, didn't yes. we? Yes. Because of the kind of work we were allowed to do. And encouraged to do. And encouraged to do. And the, and the people had the courage to ask us to do it. Yeah. That was even more amazing, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, you must have been, obviously were, Joan, very close to Sir Lawrence when he was preparing for this extraordinary Othello for which nobody could get tickets. How did he prepare for the physical side of it? Oh, I, I mean, yeah, going to the gym... Um, Bellowing at a field of cows. Bellowing at a field of cows. Yes, lowering the timbre of his voice, uh, and and taking voice lessons with coaches who told him what to do and how how to help, and then and then running along the promenade in Brighton, where he collapsed one day because he wrecked his ankle or something and needed help to get home. And Derek, you got a, a good part in the famous Royal Hunt of the Sun, Peter Schaffer's play. Yes. Which contained some rather specific <coughs> stage directions, didn't um, it? As, you as, were an Indian in I, Yes, I was the first Indian you saw. There was a stage direction um, in which we all had to uh, climb the Andes and we climbed the Andes and we crossed them and then we came down the other side and I was the, I was the leader. I had to lead them across. But I didn't have much on except a lot of um, paint. Um, it was called Texas Earth. It had little um, glittery bits in it and, and a, a wig that made me look sort of early Cilla Black. Um, there's an awful I, lot of corpsing during There's that. a lot oh, of corpsing. Oh, uh, Michael. Yes. Because Derek was in front so with nothing on and we'd all be climbing behind him <laughs> with our backs to the audience almost. I, I think one has to pay tribute to Dexter's work because... When John you Dexter. read the play on the yes. page, you have, would have no idea how to do it. I mean, the, you know, this, yes. this stage direction about crossing the Andes. And it, John had an absolutely clear idea about how to, how to prepare it and to use a mime teacher, Claude Chagrin, to, to work particularly on the Indians, you know. Before every performance, they used to, you used to hear over the tannoy, Everybody on stage for the toil, song, and massacre, yeah. and, yeah. Yeah. and the whole company would troop, yeah. troop down yeah. at yeah. six o'clock oh, yeah. and rehearse the toil, song, and massacre every performance. Yeah. You know? We heard Billy Whitelaw earlier talking about touring and being in Moscow, London one night and Moscow the next. I, I suppose it was a leftover from the famous days of repertory theatre. Well, it was also the fact that you know the National Theatre belonged to everybody. You shouldn't have to come to London all the time to see it, it should go out to them. And, and you, you, you know, you thought, well, perhaps they won't particularly be interested in us in Bradford, but they were. Because you, you were in Uncle Vanya. And three sisters, we, uh, both the Chekhovs uh, that we'd taken there. And I remember people, you know, saying at the door, uh, yeah, no, we've had a very good time. We like stuff with a bit of meat in it. <laughs> and, uh, you were, you know, you were sort of thrilled to bits that that they you've been accepted there and and really appreciated. I wonder why they want it. 
They've got theatres in London. Despite its huge critical and box office successes, in 1967, the theatre was a quarter of a million pounds into the red. Some people began to question the need for a national company. Like a lot of things in this country, like the Concorde, you're subsidised and there's just a few people. But Jenny Lee, now Harold Wilson's arts minister and a fierce supporter of the theatre, stood firm. We've got a wonderful arrangement in this country in which it's for the government to give to the arts as generously as possible. The National Theatre has been difficult to fit into a pigeonhole. You see, critics like things they can classify and write about. Kenneth Tynan, who'd briefly become the most notorious man in Britain in 1965 after his use of the F-word in a BBC television debate about censorship, jumped to the National's defence. We're doing Noel Carr, we're doing Sophocles, we're doing new authors. <laughs> the theatre needed a new hit, a new play, and it got it. At the 1966 Edinburgh Festival Fringe, Tynan had seen a rave review of an existentialist tragicomedy, and he was determined to bring it to the National Theatre. What does it all add up to? The play was Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, written by a playwright still in his 20s called Tom Stoppard. I mean, I was in seventh heaven, quite honestly. You know, suddenly, not for very long, but for a short time, everything seemed to be about me and my play. The company's future move to a new modern home on the South Bank, designed by Dennis Lazen, was the subject of a great deal of speculation in the press. It'll have no less than three auditoria, collectively offering the finest of world drama and the very best of British performance. It'll have a restaurant, cafeteria, space for exhibitions, and heaven knows how much else to please and comfort us. A lot of people look on 1967 as a bit of a watershed because the company was just beginning maybe to lose its shine. It had been successful for so many years. There were rows about Oedipus between Peter Brook and Laurence Olivier, weren't there? Yes. Peter Brook did a very kind of experimental production of Oedipus, uh, which ended with a, a kind of celebration with a huge inflatable phallus in the middle on stage. I seem to remember it was gold. Yes, it was a, a, a source of contention between Larry and Peter Brook. The chorus were kind of lashed to pillars. Oh, yes, they were. That's right, all over the auditorium. Yes. I do remember chocolate. being a member of the audience and really? seeing, I can still see them um, uh, tied to their pillars. Yes. The, the, the John Gielgud story of um, all those weeks of improvisation. And um, eventually Peter Brook said, no, I want you all to go out and come in one by one and frighten me. <laughs> and they all came in and tried to think of things to frighten Peter Book. And then John Gielgud's turn came and he came in and said, Peter, dear, we open in two weeks' time. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I think it was uh, one of Brooks' early attempts to absorb all the influences of the American theatre, the living theatre. And uh, well, I'm not... I think he would be the first to admit... Uh, fully digested, so that's why it, it, it never quite gelled as a production. It was around this time, um, 1968, I think, Bill Gaskell, and you would remember it well, that the role of the Lord Chamberlain ended, and he was the theatre censor, effectively. It was very interesting. It, it, um, it Somehow, the, having an enemy is very important, and a lot of the energy, uh, certainly of the time that I was running the theatre, came from having this being that we fought against. And when he went and we could do anything we liked, I thought it made life uh, much easier, of course, but in some ways less exciting and sometimes less creative. 
Maggie, you and Robert Stevens yeah. were married yes, at this we were. point, and you were the great golden <laughs> couple of of English theatre. Yes. How did for a you? Bit. Well, for quite a long time. <laughs> <laughs> were there regrets at all about having left the Old Vic Company? I was I was very sad about leaving, but there weren't any more parts. I remember that distinctly. Really? They kind of yes, they kind of went ran out, and that was. But I think I really realised that the writing was on the wall when Larry asked me if I would like to do um, Twelfth Night or As You Like It, and I said Twelfth Night, and they did an all male version of As You Like It, <laughs> and I kind of thought, well, that's, that's nothing the much for me. No, there. quite. <laughs> so got the message. After three years, I, I left and I went. I got made an appointment with Sir Lawrence, and he said, "What do you want?" I said, "I, I want to know if there's any chance of playing bigger parts." And he said, "Well, whose parts do you want?" I said, "Well, no." I, he said, "And Nate, what are the actors now?" I said, "I don't want people's parts." He said, you don't want to take parts away from people. I said, no. I said, well, what size? I said, well, the size Derek Jacob is playing or John Stride's parts or those sort of size parts I'd like to be. He said, well, you can't have them here. He said, I'm sorry. So he got me into Birmingham Rep. Anyway, I went to Birmingham Rep for a year and I, and I played Othello, which I'd just been in his Othello, so I just copied him at Birmingham Rep. <laughs> <laughs> you, you I remember I did all the hand gestures and I did the actual movement. You, know, <laughs> you copied... <laughs> You copied Sir Lawrence's yes, performance. Yes, word for word and, and move for move. Did any of the critics spot this? No, they didn't. I even did the voice. And uh, I even, you know, you make yourself up in rep, then you wear. I even tried to wear the same sort of costume. And uh, it was quite successful. At that time, I began to get a little stir crazy myself and uh, decided that um, my career had been Birmingham Rep and the National Theatre. Um, over the course of 11 years. I was very lucky I wasn't out of work for 11 years. I mean, amazing for a young actor. So very privileged. And I remember going to see Lawrence in his office and saying, you know, I really think I ought to take the leap into the dark and and leave. And, you know, at the back of my head, I thought I'll take a sabbatical for a year. But he immediately said, well, yes, go with my blessing. And I... I left the room, I got out of the door, and I thought he didn't put up much of a fight, did he? <laughs> um, and I was, I was out, I was out of a job. I didn't, I, you know, but um, fortunately, my, my luck held and I got a job. The delays went on and on and on. Finally, they said another two years. Oh. The, the new building seemed at one point a sort of chimera, I suppose. It would never happen. Yes, and Peter Hall had been appointed as the takeover. Larry, who had obviously would have liked to lead the company into the new National Theatre building, just thought, that I don't think I can just go on for two years. You know, he'd had his first sort of illness, really, when, well, it was when we were doing Three Sisters, so... I think the responsibility and the huge weight, it certainly did not help. Goodbye. Goodbye. In 1973, in deteriorating health, Laurence Olivier gave his last stage performance in Trevor Griffith's The Party and stood down as director of the company. In 1976, Olivier's successor, Peter Hall, finally led the company into their new home on the South Bank. Dennis Lasdon's new National Theatre sits easily alongside its sister buildings on London's South Bank, with sharply angled lines composed of rough-hewn concrete. 
Olivia attended the Royal Gala opening of the new building and he welcomed visitors with a bit of Henry V. It is an outsized pearl of British understatement to say that I am happy to welcome you at this moment in this place. Lord Olivier, one of the greatest theatrical figures of modern times, has died peacefully in his sleep at his home in West Sussex. Sir Lawrence Olivier died in 1989. What the National owes to Olivier, I think, is its very existence. I sincerely do not believe it would be there if he had not made it happen. He made sure that there's a centre to the theatre for future generations. He came closer to us all than anyone I've ever worked with in the theatre. All through that was the powerful feeling that one was in a family. And I don't think the National Theatre has ever known anything like that since. And I think we won't ever see anything quite like it again. Joan Plowright, um, understandably, that must have brought back some sad as well as happy memories for you. It was the end of an extraordinary era, the end, in a way, also of the actor-manager, the great actor-manager era. Yes. Yes, it was. He was not just an actor-manager. I mean, he he didn't take everything on himself. He did have people around him who were, you know, like beginning with Bill Gaskell and John Dexter and then uh, Michael Blakemore, Jonathan Miller. So he was not a, a total tyrant, which it sounds like when you say actor-manager. I don't think he ever was an actor-manager. I mean, I think uh, actor-managers died with Donald Wolfitt. Um, yes, that's really what I'm trying to say. And I yes. think he represented an entirely new way of looking at acting, which had its links in the past. But uh, And I think what he wanted was a bridge between the, the, the wonderful group of uh, strong actors and, and the exploration of new ways of making theatre. And I think for a time he achieved that wonderfully. And... Uh, um, I mean, I'm, the great sadness for me really is then at that point the theatre was passed over into the hands of the director and I think that has not been good for theatre at all. I think it's... Um, you uh, say this as a director yourself. I say this as a director meaningfully but I, de- I think the actor has become undervalued. You can see that with the speed with which the credits whizz past yes, on the yes. television. Uh, in Larry's time, we would not have been called lovers. We were actually called actresses. <laughs> not allowed to say that anymore. Michael Gambon, Laurence Olivia, before whom you auditioned all those years ago as Richard III, had a great effect on you and your acting style, yes? Well, yeah, I think I mean, if, I've got, if I'm playing a part and I've got high notes, I can... I do them, I can do them and hear them. I'm still acting and I'm still trying to be proper, but I can hear them in my head. I can hear him now. And what about the gestures? Uh, he makes me cry. Mm. Which you're doing now, I think. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Oh. Well, there's a tribute. Yes. yes. Derek. I, I, I echo Michael completely. Um, I still hear him. Um, I still find myself copying him vocally um, and certainly with gestures. I can remember those hands, the, the way he held his hands. And, yes. It, I, I can hear Johnny Moffat in my head when he, he said... This is the actor John yes, Moffat. Yes, and he said, I remember him saying one day, this is how I always imagined it would be, but I never thought it would. And I think that's true. I think 
that longing to want to act, to, to be of the theatre. This was our education in a, in a strange way. And it was what we want. We wanted desperately to act and to act well. And in theatre. Yes, in yes. theatre. That's what I mean. And that yeah. isn't there anymore. Well, I'm just so proud to, to have been there, you know. And nothing has been the same since. It was so concentrated, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. it was 24 7, as they yes, say. It, was. it really was. <laughs> I mean, and because you were it was. Yeah. playing. Yeah. A group of people growing up together yeah. and improving all the yeah. time and getting closer. Derek Jacobi. It was a magic golden time for me, um, idyllic time. Um, I was of an age when I was so receptive to the influences of the people surrounding me, and the people surrounding me were the cream of the crop. They were, they were the best. It was indescribable. Do you go back to the National as it is now to look at productions? I go. I go and see uh, productions, yes. I don't know if I'm the only one at this table um, who's never worked in the new building. I hope... One day, I, I may. Maggie Smith? I am sometimes, yes. I'm not, I'm not there a lot. I mean, I go to theatre. It just makes me jealous when I go to theatre. Do, do you know that? I mean, Derek. Yeah, I do. I sit there watching some actor yes. Yes. and I think, oh, God, I wish I, could, I, wish I was doing that. Joan? Yes, I do. I, I mean, I, I think the place is buzzing and, and uh, you know, a great place for people to meet. The times have changed so much and I remember... An important thing that, that Peter Hall said to me once, you know, that when he was going to take over, that the National Theatre cannot be a fortress anymore in which, inside which there are many privileged people, you know, yeah. having this wonderful life we're t yes, talking yeah. about, because it must be open to everyone. Yeah. And I guess that's where it's gone. Joan Plowright, Maggie Smith. Derek Jacobi, Michael Gambon, and Bill Gaskell. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you. The Reunion, recalling the triumphant early years of the National Theatre, presented by Sue McGregor from October 2009. I'm Daniel Rosenthal, author of A New History of the National. And as part of this archive celebration of the Theatre at 50 for BBC Radio 4 Extra, I'm picking out some stories from across the decades. Maggie Smith's witty condescension to an all-male production of As You Like It reminds me of one particular tale. Let's go to London in 1967. The fashion for free love and long-haired androgyny has begun to influence programming at the National Theatre. Its literary manager, Kenneth Tynan, and Laurence Olivier are planning a modern, all-male production of As You Like It to be directed by John Dexter. In the spirit of the times, Dexter and Tynan invite Paul McCartney to write the music. In a letter to McCartney, Tynan says he is driven by pure impulse on the part of a Beatles fan and a belief that several tracks on Revolver are in exactly the right mood for the play. At first, this idea appeals to McCartney, but he eventually declines. Meanwhile, director John Dexter goes to the Albert Hall to get a bead on the wonderful unisex appearance of young people at a pop concert. Hello. Good night. 
Hello. The performer is Donovan, and he is duly tasked with writing music for As You Like It. When I realised that uh, it was Larry and the National, I said, what do you want? And they said, well, it's kind of a fusion. It's modern, but it has tradition. So I came uh, up with Under the Greenwood Tree. Yes. I put it into the mode of the day, and the mode of the day for me, for Donovan, I mean, was this um, jazz sort of feely drum thing and came out quite well. Under the greenwood tree Who loves to lie with me and tune his merry note unto the sweet bird's throat. Come hither, come hither, come hither. Here shall you see no enemy but winter. Under the Greenwood Tree would later wind up on Donovan's album, Gift from a Flower to a Garden. Will you, won't you? Will you, won't you? There was a kind of a blend in there of Lord Buckley where at the end where I sing, I, I believe, uh, do the willy the shake <laughs> and sort of throwing in a bit of hipster talk. And then I got a call uh, through my management that the project was shelved. There were rumours that Olivier fired the director, worried As You Like It might turn into a drag show. In fact, it was a dispute over casting. Clifford Williams took over and settled on an all-male cast that included Ronald Pickup as Rosalind and Anthony Hopkins as Audrey, the goat herd. And composer Mark Wilkinson, the theatre's head of music, put this sprightly spin on Under the Greenwood Tree, sung by Roderick Horn. Under the greenwood, who loves under the greenwood tree? Who loves, who loves to lie? Who loves, who loves to lie with me? Turn his merry, ah, turn his merry note upon the sweet bird, upon the sweet bird's throat. Come hither, come hither, come hither. Here shall he see no enemy but winter and rough, 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 rough. As You Like It was a hit, and anything but a drag show. Tyrone Guthrie, a giant of the British theatre, and shortly to direct for The National himself, thought this production reflected a new, refreshing attitude. Hitherto, in this country anyway, this has always been the nudge and scream department, hasn't it? The principal boy and then the dame whose drawers come down and things like that. Now I think we're beginning to think this isn't just funny, that it's also serious and can in fact be rather poetic and interesting and isn't necessarily a vulgar or a laughable display. A man playing a woman, if he isn't just being a scream, if he wants to, he can give a very interesting suggestion of femininity. Do you feel that um, this sort of freedom and interest in, in things of this sort is in any way bound up with the general freedom and interest uh, at the moment um, in male fashions looking more like feminine ones? And women? Oh, very much so. I think the whole thing is bound up with a more, I don't know whether to call it liberal or licentious attitude towards sex. It's very significant that all this occurs at the moment when homosexuality between males has ceased to be illegal and very largely stems from the general interest in psychology and psychiatry 
that men and women are not different orders of creation, that's not one sex black and the other white, that most of the men have a good deal of femininity in them and the women a good deal of masculinity. And I think it's nothing but sensible to realise this because it's the fact. Tyrone Guthrie there, indulging in a wide-ranging discussion about the all-male as you like it. And I'm Daniel Rosenthal, bringing you some stories from the National Theatre for BBC Radio 4 Extra. Still to come are Richard Bryars as a rat, Bob Hoskins dealing with some stubborn scenery and a sticky situation for Judy Dench. Um, I was in dreadful trouble about it. I've gone very, very clammy now for even thinking about it. The National Theatre at 50 was written and presented by Daniel Rosenthal and it was a testbed production for BBC Radio 4 Extra. The producer is Tamsin Hughes.